Hi, this is Tim here. After launching the Thinking Nutrition podcast in January of 2020, it has grown far beyond my expectations and is now one of my main communication channels for nutrition. Since launch, it has firmly been entrenched in the top 10 on the Apple podcast charts for nutrition in Australia. And with now close to 250,000 downloads, sits in the top 1% of all podcasts globally. I mean, just wow. Thank you to you, my listeners, for your support and sharing of the content. With new episodes dropping every Tuesday, there is now a bank of 50 episodes in the catalogue. So with that, I'm going to take a few well-earned weeks off over the Christmas break before I come back with new episodes in 2021. But fear not, weekly content will still be coming out for the next few weeks in the form of rebroadcasting my most popular episodes. And for this week, it is about one of the most popular health trends today, intermittent fasting. Enjoy. Intermittent fasting is currently one of the world's most popular health trends. Characterized by alternating periods of food absence, followed by periods of normal eating, promoters of intermittent fasting claim that it is the metabolic key to unlocking weight loss, reduce inflammation, cutting the risk of diabetes and heart disease, and maybe even extending your life. If you want to learn just what intermittent fasting is, how to do it, and importantly, what the evidence says about that long list of claims, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Thinking Nutrition Podcast. My name is Tim Crow, and I'm a career researcher, educator, and science communicator with most of this spent in the absolutely fascinating, yet seemingly always controversial area of nutrition. There is so much conflicting information in the field of nutrition. So how do you make sense of it all? There are lots of people claiming to be nutrition experts, but who can you trust? While I don't profess to have all the answers in an area that is continually changing as research changes, you can count on what is covered in this podcast to be based on the whole field of nutrition science, not just selective areas that support a particular way of thinking. And this podcast will always be free from any commercial product tie-ins, endorsements or advertisements. Just good quality credible nutrition science presented in plain and simple language and then translating this into what it means for your health. So on with today's show. Intermittent fasting may have the appearance that it's just another short-term diet fad like so many others that have gone before it. But in fact, there is nothing new novel or faddish about it at all. The first meal of every day, no matter what time it is eaten, is the breaking of the fast. So you've been doing it your entire life. Just to be clear though, fasting is not the same as starvation. Starvation is the involuntary absence of food, such as what happens during food scarcity and famine. While fasting is the voluntary withholding of food for spiritual, health, or other reasons. Tracing back thousands of years, we have the ancient tradition of religious fasting, which is common across all the major world religions. 
The daily sunrise to sunset month of fasting of Ramadan is probably the most well-known example of this. So now we have the new trend of intermittent fasting, which is the practice of alternating periods of normal eating with extended periods, usually 16 to 48 hours of low or to no food intake. What has caused this explosion of interest in intermittent fasting can be traced back to a few defining moments. The first was the airing of Dr. Michael Mosley's documentary on the BBC called Eat, Fast and Live Longer in August of 2012. That soon spurred a swathe of popular books such as The Fast Diet and The 5-2 Diet. A peek at Google Trends shows a clear spike of interest in searches for intermittent fasting at this time, and the interest has only grown since then. Throw in celebrity endorsements from Hollywood and Silicon Valley, and we're rapidly approaching peak fasting. Another explanation for the interest in intermittent fasting is the simplicity of it. Fasting bypasses all the debate about what nutrients and foods should and should not be eaten, and instead purely focuses on the length of time between eating. Fasting proponents are mostly agnostic about what foods are eaten during the feasting times, so a book about fasting is a very short read indeed. So how to do a fasting diet? There are several different ways all of which involving splitting the day or week into eating and fasting periods. Intermittent fasting focuses on the time when you don't eat, kind of like the saying that it is the silence between the notes that make the music, and that's very zen, I know. Here are some of the most widely used fasting schedules. The 16-8 plan involves eating only during an 8-hour period, followed by a 16-hour fasting window. So, if you have your last meal at 8pm at night, you don't eat again until midday the next day, and rinse and repeat. This method is technically called time-restricted fasting, but falls under the intermittent fasting umbrella. Then there is the elegantly simple eat-stop-eat way of doing fasting. Simply fast for a full 24 hours straight, easier said than done, and you do that for one or two days per week. Then we have the popular 5-2 diet. This involves choosing two days each week where you will eat only 500 to 600 calories per day, but you eat normally on the other five days. Which method is best? Science is nowhere near answering that question. Many people find the 16-8 method to be the simplest and most sustainable method to stick to. If you find it becomes easy to do, then it is possible to move to more advanced fasts, like a 24 fast, where you fast for 20 hours and then eat for four hours. Or even join the one meal per day club and do true 24 hour fast day after day after day. But it doesn't stop there. Delve into the intermittent fasting subculture on Reddit and you'll read of all manner of self-experimentation. Here, days of water-only fasts are the norm. And then some go even more hardcore and do dry fasting. That means no water and often no showers or brushing teeth to avoid any water absorption. 
the premise of doing this takes bro science to stratospheric levels. Then there are the intermittent fasting debates, where the outside of water, non-caloric drinks such as tea and coffee, I mean without sugar or milk obviously, are okay to have when fasting. There seems little to say that a short black will do any harm in losing the benefits of a fast, so I say if it helps, then do it. But on that note, spoiler alert for an upcoming episode where I'll delve into coffee and its effects on health and where the news is good, surprisingly good indeed. So in looking at the evidence for benefits of intermittent fasting, let's start with the big one first, weight loss. Here's the super short summary. Some people lose weight, others don't, and it doesn't seem to be any better or worse than any other diet a person could choose to use. Now for the science. The idea of fasting is that when we eat after an extended fast, we don't fully compensate for the food we've gone without. That creates an energy deficit and weight loss. Proponents also say that intermittent fasting is easier to maintain, so that it will help with adherence. There's been enough human weight loss trials comparing intermittent fasting against traditional calorie restriction, which is your traditional diet, to see how they stack up. And that was the topic of a review paper published in the journal Nutrients in October of 2019. And I'll link to that study in the show notes. So in this study, 11 randomized controlled trials were looked at, and they all ran for at least eight weeks and involved adults who were overweight. Intermittent fasting was compared to calorie restriction head-to-head in each study. And what did they find? Nothing to get excited about. Nine out of the 11 studies showed no differences between groups in terms of weight or body fat loss. So if there is a benefit, it is a pretty small one and not of much clinically significant. There wasn't a strong case either for a greater loss of body fat in intermittent fasting versus calorie restriction, even though the odd study did find that this happened. And as for sustainability, is intermittent fasting easier to maintain? Well, not enough evidence. All diets are pretty poor, and it seems intermittent fasting falls under that same umbrella, that longer term, it's not a realistic option for most people to stick to if weight loss is their goal. So, in summary, if intermittent fasting works for you, and meets your goals, and you feel better for it, knock yourself out, and with whatever fasting protocol works for you. But you won't be seeing me anytime soon proclaiming it as some next level diet hack that is going to have you shredded for summer and recommending that everybody should be doing it. All diets can work, but few stick to them long term. I mean, hands up who is still doing paleo to the original letter it was promoted as. I rest my case. So let's look at some other benefits. So fasting for weight loss is hardly a new idea. But what is novel about the explosion in interest in fasting is the clinical research behind it with claim benefits for health and longevity. The body of evidence on intermittent fasting in humans is still relatively small, but several studies have reported improvements in various health markers. 
it is still an active area of debate if there are any unique metabolic benefits to intermittent fasting over traditional chronic caloric restriction, which is your typical diet. And once you start talking about benefits of intermittent fasting outside of weight loss, you'll soon come up against a term called autophagy or autophagy. Auto means self and phagy means eat. So autophagy is the body's way of cleaning out damaged cells literally by eating itself. This is done as a way for the body to regenerate newer and healthier cells. It's going on inside you right now, but during fasting, cells activate pathways that increase defenses against oxidative and metabolic stress and systems that remove or repair damaged molecules. Think of this like a switch that is activated in periods of food scarcity as the body looks for more fuel sources. Less junk, means a cleaner, leaner, and better functioning running body. At least, that's the theory. In our modern times of food abundance and three meals per day with snacks in between, it is rare for this metabolic switch to be flipped. But the benefits of the switch have favorable advantages in improving blood sugar regulation, increasing resistance to stress, and decreasing inflammation. So is intermittent fasting the key to reducing inflammation, cutting the risk of diabetes and heart disease, improving the brain and neural systems, and maybe even extending your life? Well, a lot of this is really conjecture or based on animal studies at this stage. But a paper published only last month in the highly regarded New England Journal of Medicine has put the health claims about intermittent fasting diets under the microscope. And I'll link to that paper in the show notes. Weight loss aside, there are some initial indications that intermittent fasting may have some additional metabolic advantages, with animal studies and some human research to inform it. There appears a benefit of fasting on supporting cellular health. Cellular health is a broad term and includes things like resistance of cells to metabolic and oxidative stress, increased DNA repair, and activation of antioxidant defense systems. Other benefits uncovered by this review included some evidence for intermittent fasting on decreasing blood pressure, improving blood lipid levels, and even lowering resting heart rates. Clinical trials show that even independent of weight loss, Intermittent fasting has an additional advantage on insulin sensitivity and abdominal obesity compared to just a traditional calorie-reduced diet. In animals and humans, physical function is improved with intermittent fasting. For example, mice maintained on alternate day fasting have better running endurance than mice that have unlimited access to food. Balance and coordination are also improved in animals on daily time-restricted feeding or alternative day fasting regimens. More speculative, but there appears some preliminary research to show that intermittent fasting could benefit brain health too. One study found that mice that were on a brief intermittent fasting diet had better learning and memory than mice with free access to food. 
Further research in animals suggests that intermittent fasting can suppress inflammation in the brain, which has links to neurological disease. Other animal studies have found that intermittent fasting can reduce the risk of neurological disorders, including Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and stroke. One study with 220 healthy adults who maintained a calorie-restricted diet for two years showed signs of improved memory. There is a lot of work that needs to be done here, but the results so far are looking interesting. As for longevity, unless you're a worm or maybe a lab rat, there isn't much evidence to show that intermittent fasting will help you live longer. But if it helps with weight loss and reduces the risk of some chronic diseases like heart disease and type 2 diabetes, then that is where the benefit could lie. And finally, for cancer, animal studies suggest that intermittent fasting may prevent cancer, but there is nothing yet to say it will help in humans. As a side journey, there is absolutely fascinating work being done looking at how fasting during chemotherapy could improve treatment by promoting cellular regeneration and reducing side effects like nausea and vomiting. Very early days for this, but it is an area I'm watching with interest. And if you want to learn more, I've linked to a commentary article on this in the show notes. And finally, it would be remiss of me not to make the big statement that intermittent fasting is not for everyone. If you're underweight or have a history of eating disorders, intermittent fasting is likely not for you, unless under the supervision of a health professional. Intermittent fasting could certainly be a dangerous trigger for some vulnerable to an eating disorder. For anyone taking medications to treat diabetes, then intermittent fasting should not be done without talking to your doctor first. These medications are designed to remove glucose from the blood, and without any food, they can do their job too well and put a person at risk of hypoglycemia. Hunger is the main side effect of intermittent fasting, and you may also feel weak and your brain may not perform as well as you're used to, but this seems to only be temporary as it can take some time for your body to adapt. And if you're pregnant or breastfeeding, probably best to give intermittent fasting a miss till you're past that stage. So that's your user's guide to intermittent fasting. It is something I'm asked about a lot on for my thoughts. And my standard response now is that if it connects with you, you find it works and you can fit it into your daily life and it helps to make life easier rather than harder, then go for it. But there is a long way to go before there's enough evidence to move intermittent fasting into the mainstream as a first-line approach to lose weight or a viable way to treat many health conditions. So all this talk about fasting is making me hungry. So for the last part of the show, I'd like to do a quick research wrap-up about a study that has grabbed my attention recently. And the topic of this research is cooking shows. Cooking shows are not just a source of entertainment, with a new study finding kids who watched a healthy cooking show aimed at kids were almost three times more likely to make healthy food choices. The backstory here is that our food choices and habits as adults are strongly influenced by our experiences of food during childhood. Poor dietary habits 
during childhood and adolescence have many negative effects on several health and wellness indicators, such as keeping a healthy weight, growth and development patterns, and even dental health. Prior research has shown that when kids and adolescents are involved in the preparation of healthy foods, such as vegetables and salads, they are more likely to consume nutrient-rich foods. They are more likely to have higher intakes of important nutrients, and at the same time, they consume less sugary and fatty foods. But today, there has been a marked fall in the number of meals eaten in the home. Combine that with a greater reliance on pre-prepared food, and this means less exposure of kids to modeling of cooking skills by adults. So could cooking programs be a useful way to improve children's food and food preparation knowledge, which could translate into better eating habits? To test this novel idea, Dutch researchers recruited children between the ages of 10 and 12 years from five different schools. The children watched one of two different videos. One was of a video clips of cooking programs aimed at children containing healthy foods, while the other video was a cooking program containing unhealthy foods. Another group of children served as the control group, and they watched a short video from a children's quiz show. After the video viewing, the children were offered a snack as a reward for taking part in the study. The snack was a choice of apple or cucumber pieces as the healthy options, or chips and salted pretzels as the less healthy options. And what did they find? Children who watched the cooking program with healthy foods were almost three times more likely to choose healthy food as their snack. The children were also asked to rate how healthy the food was that they saw in the video clips, and they were very switched on, as they could clearly distinguish the difference between healthy and less healthy foods. Now, I like this research as it helps to reinforce the benefit of getting kids involved in the kitchen, and may help parents in being selective in choosing some better targeted cooking programs aimed at their kids that they can watch. Good cooking skills developed through childhood has the potential to carry over into adult life, into the food health choices that they make. So that's it for today's show. You can find the show notes either in the app you're listening to this podcast on, if it supports it, or else head over to my webpage at thinkingnutrition.com.au and click on the podcast section to find this episode to read the show notes. If you find this podcast of value, then please consider sharing it with your friends and colleagues, or maybe even leave a review. This all helps increase the ranking and reach of the podcast, which means a big win for credible, evidence-based nutrition messages while helping to dilute out the crazy and making the world a slightly less confusing place. I'm Tim Crow, and you've been listening to Thinking Nutrition. Thinking Nutrition.